Does she listen to your podcast? No, no, okay. not not too many of my in-laws. Actually, nobody really, like, I don't think my parents do. I don't think my sister does. I don't think my, like, in-laws do either. You guys. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you guys. Uh. This will be, like, the first the episode that my sister-in-law to. tunes into. And she's like, what? This is the type of shit you Yeah, yo. He said me. He was making fun of my mom. Welcome to Creative Ops. Podcast for creative people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Creative Ops. This is episode 106 with Shayna Marie. Shayna is a writer, a poet, activist, radio host. She's involved in filmmaking and, in her words, a textbook weirdo trying to figure things out. Shayna uses her creative powers to entertain as well as uplift. She is a teaching artist with the Diet Tribe. She runs an open mic and is working on manifesting a birthday party with Oprah Winfrey. In this one, we talk about a lot of things, specifically creativity, but we also talk a lot about culture and social activism and things like that. It's a little all over the place, but in a good way. And we start with some poems and we end with some poems by her, not me. You don't want to hear <laughs> You don't want to hear mine. So everything that you need to know is in the show notes. Go check it out. You know what to do. And uh, without further ado, here's Shayna. talking before we started recording here that uh, you're manifesting a special birthday let's talk about that <laughs> yeah so i found out when i was in first grade that me and oprah winfrey have the same birthday and so i've had this childhood dream that one day oprah's gonna want to be my friend and somehow some way she's gonna throw me a birthday party and I've actually never been closer to that dream than I am now. So you may or may not know Oprah is coming to Grand Rapids in May. So she'll be at the Grand Rapids Econ Club's annual dinner celebration. Um, and I was able to finesse my way in there. Um, and I actually have a poem that I intend to read to her if I can just get like a second of her time. <laughs> and it might be compelling enough for her to be like, fuck it, what you doing next year? Let's have a birthday party. So, Well... We talked about reading uh, a little bit of poetry on here. Do you want to read that real quick? Sure. May as well. Yeah. So this one is called An Ode to Oprah. I wrote it um, before I found out that I was actually going to be able to get into this event. Um, so I reached out to to somebody. I don't know if I should like name drop or whatever, but I'll just say <laughs> she's a dope ass bestselling author. Um, wrote about her experiences, you know, being adopted. She's a powerhouse DEI leader and facilitator in the community. So shout out to you if you listen in. I love you. Thank you for allowing me a chance to possibly meet Oprah. Um, but yeah, when I reached out to her about going to the event, I was just so like filled with emotion and yeah. just excitement. Like, yo, like I'm about to realize this crazy dream. Like I get to just breathe Oprah's air potentially. <laughs> so yeah, this is what kind of came out of that moment. Oprah, 
I know you don't know me, but you've shown me so much about the beauty of life. When I was in the first grade, I flipped through pages of a book of birthdays, seeing nothing but old white men until I saw your face. Oprah Winfrey, born January 29, 1954. I swear my seven-year-old heart dropped to the floor. Me and Oprah have the same birthday. I couldn't contain the excitement. I couldn't believe my eyes, so I closed them tight and I looked again just to be sure. And sure enough, there she was. And as I looked again and again, my mind started to wonder, what if Oprah would be my friend? See, at seven, I had an inquiring mind. My dad told me that I'd spend my time flipping through newspaper pages and always asking why. Why do people fight about what's wrong and what's right? Why is faith like walking without sight? And I'd stay up all night with my head in a book until mom would come in my room and give me that look. And I watched your show too. It was truly my favorite. At seven years old, I thought you were the greatest. And I'll never forget the day that I saw your face in that book. I was shook. But it was the start of a dream that I knew was a little crazy, but I just had to believe that one day on January 29, I'd celebrate a birthday with the woman who changed my life. And though it may have been a little far-fetched, I etched that dream in the back of my mind. And over time, as the birthdays passed by, that dream would occasionally make its way back to the front of my mind. And somewhere deep inside, I knew I would find a way. And today, approaching 29, I realized how much that dream shaped me. Because I started to think, if Oprah would celebrate a birthday with me, what type of person would I have to be? Someone whose story could inspire. Maybe I'd be a writer that brings stories to life or maybe a entrepreneur whose business touches lives or a journalist that uncovers the lies or maybe a philosopher that challenges the way we think or maybe I'd be a poet that makes pages sing or maybe just a dreamer that's unafraid to dream. But as I approach 29, much to my surprise, I realize that I've become all those things. And it all started with that day in the first grade that I saw your face in that book. And I took that seven-year-old's dream, made it a part of me. And then I asked myself, what type of person do I want to be? I want to be the type of person who Oprah would throw a birthday party with. Someone who never forgets to dream. One thing that I really like, just just from your style that I've heard a little bit of, is the rhymes in it don't feel forced. Anytime I try to write poetry, rhyming poetry, it's like, ah, this sounds so stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things. So I also teach poetry um, in several different schools in the community. And that's one thing I always tell my students, like, you don't have to rhyme and yeah. you don't have to overthink the rhyme. Like, just let it come out naturally. I use a lot of like near rhyme or kind mm -hmm. of like that. Just throw it in the middle yeah. of a phrase. There was phrase. a couple in there where I was like, oh, wait, that rhyme. Yeah. 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 So like it just flows out when I don't think about like, oh, this has to rhyme. This has to follow a certain structure. Like yeah. I fucking hate structured poetry. Like it just feels so meh to me. Like why does it have to have <laughs> rules, you know? 
Um, So, yeah, I really like the fact that that's something that we really encourage working with students. Some of them have never written anything before, Mm. you know, and that becomes a serious barrier for them to express themselves. And it's just not always necessary. So I have some poems that like really don't rhyme at all, but still work. So, yeah, I remember studying poetry and (laughs) hearing one quote, writing poetry that doesn't rhyme is like playing tennis without a net. And I don't know what point he was trying to prove there, but I was I like, mean, you could totally play tennis without a net. <laughs> yeah. It's called racquetball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So, yeah, take that. Yeah. Tennyson or one of those guys. I don't know. <laughs> Some old poet. All right. Well, for me, when I started writing, and I've said this story a lot, I apologize if listeners have heard it already. Uh, when I was really young, I used to go and spend like one or two nights on the weekends at my grandma's house. And she was not. I just sit down and do nothing kind of woman. She was outside watering plants, doing laundry, cooking something, baking something always. And when she needed to do something and have me just like chill out because she only had like two channels on her TV out way out in the country, she would get out a typewriter, a bunch of paper, give me a story prompt and then come and check on me and look at it and go, oh, well, that's good. But you got to remember, there's got to be a beginning, middle and an end They're right here. This doesn't really go anywhere. Can you figure out how to make this connect to something that gives some kind of closure? And she was like my first editor and my first oh. teacher and really didn't tell me it was wrong. Just kept saying like, oh, you know, maybe you can try this mm-hmm. and maybe you can try this. And did you think about doing this with it? And that really more than anything else got me into writing. What was it for you that was like, oh man, this is a thing for me? Um... It was probably reading for me. Like I fell in love with reading at a really young age. um, And I just imagined like, what if I could write stories this good? So I started off just writing stories, like fictional stuff. Um, From there, I ended up just writing like journals, diary entries. um, And I didn't really fall in love with poetry probably until like middle school, high school, um, Maya Angelou, I discovered her around Mm. that time. And I was just like, whoa. So it's kind of, yeah, like just being exposed to people who had done it and just kind of thinking like, I could maybe do this and trying it. So, yeah. Yeah, I really like Maya Angelou and um, Nikki Giovanni. I'm going to have to refresh my memory on Nikki Giovanni, but. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll look up some of her poems afterwards. She's dope though. Um, When I taught at the, I had a bunch of bunch of writers and poets pictures up there and uh i had her and nikki giovanni well my angelo and nikki giovanni and i had a picture of frederick Douglass too and I'm, <laughs> this is <not> so <laughs> random but i had one student i was like does anybody know who that is and one kid goes uh an old ass wiz khalifa <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like, not exactly kids say the darndest things you remember that show kids say the darndest thing yeah i feel like they need to bring that back but it's going to be so much more out of pocket like nowadays compared to then. But I would be here for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my kids say some wild stuff the other day on the way to school. <laughs> my kid, my my older son said to my younger son, like, hey, did you get that thing signed that you needed? And he was like, I got my butthole signed. And I was like, dude, you can't say stuff like that. Please don't talk like that in front of your teacher. <laughs> First of all, I have so many questions, but I'm going to keep them to myself. Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> wow. Kids do say the darndest things. They do. Hopefully not in a public place where it'll embarrass me, but yeah. Um, they don't have, they don't care. Like there's no filter, no regard. They just going to say what they're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. 
when did you turn from just kind of like loose form writing stories to really going like, oh, you know what, this this poetry here's a thing? Um, I was really kind of off and on from, like I said, around middle school through high school, different things would happen in my life and I would go back and kind of try to process it through poetry. Mm-hmm. I really didn't start writing super consistently until my adult life, like probably 2017-ish. Like I kind of mm. refound that passion. I feel like when I graduated from high school and started college, like it just wasn't something that I felt like I had the time or the energy for. Yeah. Um, so I dropped out of school and I ended up moving to Nashville for a while. Oh. And um, I found a local like spoken word community there. Mm. And that kind of re-sparked my passion. Yeah. And then moving to Grand Rapids uh, within my first year of being here, I discovered similar community here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like the most consistent I've been with writing, you know, constantly has been over the last four or five years. Yeah. So I actually have a goal for this year that so far I'm like, 95 percent accurate but um or consistent mm-hmm. and then it was just to write something every single day yeah so i've written more content in the last f- few months than i have in probably the last year or two combined hmm. so did uh i'm just wondering because i know f- personally for me i was not a fan of school and it really kind of killed my love of both reading and writing Mm -hmm. and I didn't really pick it up again until uh actually when I was 21 and I was in training still in the navy I was out of boot camp but I was at the next place you go after boot camp to kind of like learn your job Mm -hmm. and it was in uh, Pensacola Florida and we had Hurricane Ivan I was about to say Katrina that was the next one I was right there like in the eye of the hurricane and uh Hurricane Ivan came through and that just knocked out water knocked out power and for a couple of weeks we didn't have anything and a buddy of mine brought a backpack full of stephen king novels and he was like hey man you look bored i was like all right and i read a book in like a day and i was like you got any more he's like oh yeah tons and i probably read i don't know nine or ten stephen king novels in about a week just because i had nothing better to do you don't want to play basketball or football because you don't want to get sweaty because you don't have running water yeah so yeah it was uh school kind of killed my joy but then like you said, you know, you find the right people and it gets you back into it. Did that, does that kind of ring true with you or did you just have so much other stuff going on? Um, yeah, I was actually really fucking good at school. <laughs> I, I don't know. I loved school for whatever reason. I think it was mostly because um, my family life wasn't all that great. And I really wanted, I knew I wanted to move away from West Michigan. Mm. And I saw school as an opportunity to do that um, just to kind of break some of those curses and and kind of escape so i really poured myself into school um but i do agree that the right people can bring it out of you like having that community really can make a huge difference again like just me having the community that i have here like it keeps me accountable um it keeps me they say you're the average people of the five people you spend the most time with so i do spend a good amount of time with other poets and community or at events and um it rubs off you know yeah. so yeah, I definitely think that the people factor is is huge because um, it, it does take a lot of like self-discipline to really like hone your craft, especially mm. if you don't have other people that you're bouncing ideas off of. Or um, I know they say comparison is the thief of joy, but it <laughs> also can um, motivate you to mm-hmm. be better when you are around people that are killing it. You know, you're just yeah. like, I want to I want to get there, too. So yeah. when it's yeah. not jealousy, but it's like, I want to. I want to 
feel like this person feels. I want to be doing as much stuff as this person's doing. Not yeah. necessarily I want their life. Yeah. Yeah. Like like I said, it's just uh, as long as it's motivating you to be better, mm. um, then I don't, I don't really see an issue with that. So. Yeah. Like our friend, uh, our mutual friend, Mike Logan. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to him the other day and I was like, man, I've just been so busy lately. And he's like, you know, I like hanging around with people that stay busy. And I was thinking about it more and more after he said that. And without really focusing on that, I've just kind of been drawn to people that do stuff like like you. Um, well, real quick backstory. We met because I'm friends with um, Sean Jackson, the keyboard player for Art Sauce Quartet. And I came out to see him play at the Brow House over here in Bridge Street. And you were sitting in the corner <laughs> and he was just playing his sweet little music. And then you came up and you started singing and you had this beautiful voice. And I was like, oh, my God, my <laughs> buddy was Mike was with me. Um, and I was just like, this woman's amazing. And when you find people that do things and they're out there and they're doing it, you just keep meeting more people. And it's yeah. your your world just expands so fast once you get into the right group of people like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. And oh, shout out to Sean. He actually accompanied me at uh, GR Noir, which I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, just incredibly talented person. But yeah, I moved here. I, I grew up in West Michigan um, and I always came out to Grand Rapids because my grandfather ran the Paul I. Phillips facility um, over there familiar. on Madison. It's it's now the Boys and Girls Club. But at the time, um, it was actually oh, yeah, okay. like through City of Grand Rapids Parks and Rec Department. And they did this night court program, which was kind of like a basketball um, program for youth throughout the inner city to come and have, you know, safe place to mingle and, and develop. So he, he really mentored a lot of youth. But um, I, I moved to Grand Rapids for the first time as an adult in 2019. And it's 2024. So over the last five years, it is amazing to see like where my networks and the relationships that I've built um are at like within a couple years of living here yeah you know I was able to do so much and just meet so many different people and um it, it's kind of sucks because I do feel like Grand Rapids is a place that um I, I think it's easier for people who come from outside of Grand Rapids mm. to get ahead can you expand on that a little bit I don't disagree with you but you know keeping in mind that only about 30 to 40% of my audience is actually in Michigan. Kind of kind of paint that picture a little bit. Yeah, so I mean I've I'm on a few different projects kind of related to just community justice and racial equity and mm -hmm. just the history of Grand Rapids. Um so Grand Rapids is pretty unique in some of the systems that are at place to kind of continue discrimination and segregation and lack of opportunity you know the educational system like there's so many barriers and it's not just racial segregation either there's a lot of uh, religious segregation yeah definitely um and and all of this was done by design on purpose to yeah. disenfranchise certain communities and so if you grew up in grand rapids and had to deal with that system i just think it makes it that much harder for you to kind of break out of that mm. and i've just seen it like i've seen a lot of people come you know, from outside of Grand Rapids and build incredible, you know, networks and lives and opportunities for themselves. And meanwhile, I know plenty of really awesome, talented people from the city that don't have access to some of the things that I have access to. Mm. And it's just mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. This, the city has a really weird 
background of othering people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even <laughs> I think I heard this on the radio one time that uh, if you go to the West Side, I mean, we're in the West Side right now, but anybody who comes to the West Side of Grand Rapids, uh, there's not very many Catholic churches, depending on what part of the West Side you're in, that are named after saints. Mm-hmm. And I heard it was because uh, a while back they passed an ordinance saying you couldn't name churches after saints. Basically discriminating against, you know, like Catholics and Lutherans. That's so weird. Yeah. So it's it's not just uh, uh, black and white, but it's also uh, Catholic and Protestant. Yeah. And yeah, but the city also does. <laughs> uh, it's not funny, but the city does have a, a strange history of, of redlining and mm-hmm. um, all those things that I'm sure we can get into a little bit more, too, but. Uh, as we get into the social justice part of the interview, which I, I guess, why don't we just push right into that? Yeah. It's a, it's a good segue. So um, tell me about GR MiFi, uh, just kind of the, the broad overview, and then we can, you know, get into specifics. Yeah, so GRMIFI, Grand Rapids Media Initiative and Film Incubator, is a local nonprofit that's really hoping to um, increase opportunities for creatives of color in Grand Rapids. Mm. Um, it started with a film project, so that's kind of like the backbone of why GRMIFI exists and the work that we do really centers around this film, and it's called um, A City Within a City. It's based on a book by Todd Robinson. Um, and this book is really an in-depth analysis of, you're familiar? I think I am. Tell me if I'm, if this sounds correct to you, because I believe I read at least a passage from that uh, where it was talking about, um, you know, at the height of Furniture City, that there was uh, a guy who owned a furniture company and a hotel, and he found this pipeline of black folks from Tennessee, and he was like, hey, come, you can live in my hotel where you're working at my factory. And then once, you know, those jobs dried up, then everybody was just kind of stuck and redlined into these undesirable neighborhoods that they ended up kicking them out of those to build 131. Hmm. Yeah, so a, a few of those things are covered in a city within a city. You might be talking about the Randall Jelks book, which is called Africans Amer- African Americans in the Furniture City. Okay. That, so that, that one that actually predates a city within a city. So that one covers kind of that... Um, industrial revolution era well the second industrial revolution with the factories and all that late 1800s to the Mm. early 1920s so that's the you know furniture city book and then there's a city within a city that really kind of picks up where that one leaves off okay carries that narrative into you know like the 1970s ish yeah so yeah but they they do talk about the um like the highway project and the imminent domain all that yeah yeah it wasn't, I don't think, until the 70s that Grand Rapids officially said, okay, no more on the books racism. Yeah. Um, so the system of racism that Grand Rapids has that is really unpacked in the book, it's called managerial racism. Hmm. Um, and it's hard to summarize into a, a small, concise statement because it is very complex and hmm. involves you know, the way money moves and the way that the the city will kind of cherry pick certain individuals from the black community to uh, further their own agenda and to kind of keep the blacks in their place. Yeah, um, and I've, I've heard that from some of my black friends too, that there will be like one person from each kind of 
artistic genre, if you will, where they'll be like, this is our guy, yeah. but nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of gatekeeping, um, a lot of, again, very intentional policies that have been put in place that are clearly racist, but a lot of it is more... Um, I guess, sinister and subtle. Yeah. Um, it kind of comes from, like, I think about that concept of West Michigan Nice. That's actually how I came across A City Within a City's book. Um, the concept of what? Say that again. West Michigan Nice. West Michigan Nice. I thought you said West Michiganites. And I was like, no. Okay. West, <laughs> West Michigan, Michigan Nice. nice. Yeah. I was researching this phenomenon um, for a research essay. That's where I came across the book A City Within a City and kind of tied that into um, just my view of West Michigan nice and some of the problems that it creates. But, you know, we have this unique brand of niceness where, you know, people will smile in your face and they have all mm. these, you know, surface level facades of diversity and equity and inclusion and all these great things. But then you peel back the layers and again, it's just the same kind of system with a different face. Yeah. So. Yeah. Actually, just <laughs> tell me if this kind of bleeds into what you're saying a little bit. I was actually this this uh, microphone uh, or headphone adapter that I'm using right now. I had to buy it Best Buy because I lost my last one. And while I was standing in line, this dude walks in, kind of looks around, sees somebody leaving one cashier's line, and he just walks up. Well, e there's a line for like all <laughs> three of them because they shut down the the main cashiers and they were sending everybody over to the service, like customer service desk. Mm -hmm. And this guy just cuts the line, walks up, and I walked right up to him and I was like, hey man, you you just cut the line. And he goes, oh, I'm just picking something up. I said, I don't care. There's a line. And then he looks at the cashier and the cashier just goes, uh, I'm just going to take care of him real quick. And I was like, man, come on. Have some balls, dude. Yeah. Stop being the, oh, well, I don't want to. No, come on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there is a level of, I guess, entitlement that certain individuals have. If you have a lot of privilege in Grand Rapids, whether it be racial, whether it be income, religion, you know, yeah. there's certain people who just have a lot more advantage. And I, I think it kind of goes to their egos yeah. where they think they can just walk around and like they own the place and they don't have to really consider how they're affecting other people because there's not really a lot of accountability. Yeah. So even in that small moment, like that shows just how awkward people feel holding people accountable to their wrong actions. So imagine how the whole community at large feels holding the government accountable or the school board accountable for their blatantly racist policies yeah. that continue to affect people today. You know, it is so a that's thing kind of, here. yeah, that West Michigan <laughs> nice attitude is all about sweeping those issues under the rug and like putting some lipstick on the problem yeah. and keeping it pushing. I've noticed that just, I think more around here than most places, although you'll probably find a little bit of that everywhere, where when you do call somebody out on something, it's very hard to get a, I'm sorry, but you'll get a lot of, oh, well, I didn't mean to. Oh, well, I'm sorry that I'm not perfect or, you know, like that yeah. kind of an attitude. Yeah, I didn't intend to. And I, I talk about this all the time, the idea of intent versus consequences. You can have good intentions all yeah. day. And if really somebody told me, hey, man, you just got in front of me in line, I would go. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. And I would go back to the back line. I wouldn't sit there and go, oh, it's just, and look indignantly at the cashier like, well, what are you going to do about this? Yeah, like how dare you call me out for being an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> yep, that attitude is pervasive here. Um, and maybe it's not just here. Maybe this is just human nature. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I lived in the South, which has its own kind of version of West Michigan nice for a little while. 
but you know there was people oh i'm sorry sweetie all the time you know bless your heart yeah people <laughs> i've noticed it in around here if you're blocking like the the grocery store aisle with your cart you might hear a <sighs> behind you instead of excuse me yeah versus in the south people oh excuse me darling can i get by yeah i i've done my my fair share of time in the south and i can definitely say that um it's really easy to spot a racist in the south because they're quite honest and blunt about it yeah. you know and in this region not so much like again we have a very uh a, just a different approach when it comes to racism where Again, like things kind of get swept under the rug and you, you just it's harder to pick it out. It's harder to like pinpoint it. Um, and people are are racist in very subtle ways um, while but they convincing cover them it by saying, I'm not racist. My niece is dating a black guy. Exactly. Like, what? What yeah. That yeah. To do with anything? Yeah. It's like the subtle racism <laughs> mixed with like the outward projection of like, I believe in equality and all of that. As long um, as they don't try to come in my neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. But in the South, it's just like, you can just tell. <laughs> you can just tell when somebody's being racist. And yeah, up here, it's just like very hard to figure out. So. Yeah. So what uh, what are you working on with uh, GRMIFI right now? Um, We've got a lot of stuff moving forward. One of my favorite projects that I've managed um, through GRMIFI is this oral history of South High School. Um, so South High School is a story that's covered in the book, and um, it was closed in the late 1960s um, as a response to national um, like integration efforts. Mm -hmm. So this is something that's happened all over America, but definitely had a really tragic effect on Grand Rapids. And so South High School was... Um, the school that m most of the black people in the community went to for generations. They had so much pride in the school. I mean, some of the greatest people from Grand Rapids came out of South High School, Al Green, mm -hmm. um, Gerald Ford. Um, I'm sure there's so many others like we have. Um, actually, I'll, I'll come back to that. But mm -hmm. it was closed. And as a result of the school being closed, um, all of these students from that area were bussed out to neighboring schools like Union and Creston. And they were kind of forced into very like hostile situations because, frankly, these white students on average didn't want a bunch of black kids coming to their school, mm. you know. Um, and so this oral history project, you know, we capture the stories of people who experience that directly, who are alum of South High. Um, and so that's going to be really cool when we roll that out into the full project. We've got about eight interviews right now. But we're going to do like a community call for stories so that we can really document this before all these people pass. I mean, they're yeah. getting older and older every day. Um, and a lot yeah. of them are unfortunately gone before we anybody's ever had a chance to capture their stories. So, And I think it's great you're doing that, too, because a lot of people, especially from, you know, like the boomer generation, if you ask them like um, or at least the white <laughs> the white boomers that I've talked to around here, you're like, you know, racism is kind of a problem around here. They're like, no. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so there's just, but I think a lot of that is allowed to, you know, whether it's straight just lying about it or just being ignorant to it, I think that's allowed to exist because of all the separations. Yeah, I I think it's a little bit of both. Like I have a hard time believing that anybody is just like so ignorant to social problems that they can't like conceptualize them at all. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I do think a lot of these like racism deniers are just literally 
trying to justify their own shit in some way yeah. you know if um, they took a real good look at it on, on some mushrooms or something they might go oh man i might be racist <laughs> yeah and it's like people are afraid to just acknowledge that yeah like i might have some racist ideology that has affected the way that i think and the way that i behave and you know yeah. it, it is very taboo nobody wants to have that label um but yeah like people pe people in this community's consistent like denial of blatant problems is fascinating yeah yeah 100 <laughs> percent. yeah so yeah outside of the oral history project i know that's going to be something that again we're going to roll out and hopefully get a lot more stories get them documented get them archived um the documentary itself we're hoping to have done by the end of this year um so that is going to be uh yeah that's gonna be a process uh being on on that crew was so freaking amazing i never saw myself in any type of film career until i happened across this project yeah. and now it's just like the amount of um experience i've gotten to have and the relationships we've built and the work that we're doing is just it's really really great um one of the things we really strongly believe in is this idea of narrative justice mm -hmm. um and it's really the idea that like through storytelling we can create a more just society because historically underrepresented groups, again, beyond race, race, class, gender, all the, all the isms. Yeah. Right. Um, people who are underrepresented have had their, to their stories told for them, you know, mm -hmm. throughout history in our textbooks and media and music. Oh my God. I um, bought, a, I, I'm a antique book collector. I don't have a, a huge collection cause I just don't have the money, but <laughs> I bought a textbook that was used in West Michigan and it was copyright 1972 and there's a section on slavery and uh you know I don't have it verbatim but this is the the gist of it was uh, slavery although uh you know a blemish on American history wasn't as bad as some people make it sound because a lot of the slaves would have uh starved had had it not been for the kindness of their masters you know like that kind of thing like God. a very apologetic tone uh to towards not slavery, but like slave owning. Like it, it's it was bad, but it, you know it could have been a lot worse, and these people would have been worse off on their own. Yeah, the blemish, a blemish of American history. That's crazy, considering it is like the critical uh, character flaw yeah. of this country. Honestly, right, right, so, right up there with the genocide of all the Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's just like yeah. Again, people are in such denial, but you know, the idea of narrative justice really um, is about empowering people with the tools um, and the resources to be able to tell their own stories effectively, whether it's mm -hmm. through a podcast or through film or through a story. Um, and people can really empathize, I think, more with something when they see it. Exactly. Uh, I mean, there, there's still people out there that read, but by by far and away, there's more people that are, you know, can would watch a YouTube clip or a TV show or a movie. Yeah. When you're getting <clears throat> authentic stories from people um, it shows you the multifaceted nature of the human existence. Like mm -hmm. they always say, you know, no one thing, no one culture is a monolith. So we have to find a way to get people to see beyond those stereotypical examples that we've been given over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and then the other, this quote that we use all the time, it, it's by uh, Carl Smith, who is one of the characters that they talk about in a city within a city, just incredible visionary thinker. Um, but he said that those who have the power to define have the power to determine. And historically, there's always been 
a, a group, a narrow group of people that have been given the power to define yeah. what it means to be American, what it means to be black, even what it means to be a grand rapidian or a global city, whatever that is. Like the people who have the power to define are the ones that then determine the outcomes. And we, as you know, minorities, as marginalized people, as underrepresented people, like we need the power to define for ourselves who we are and who we want to be. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, that, that kind of reminds me of, I can't remember who made the documentary. Might have been Killer Mike. I can't remember though. Um, but there was a documentary about hip hop and it was specifically, at least a large part of it, focused on uh, gangster rap back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> I just think of people like Tipper Gore losing their fucking minds uh, because like, oh, this music, oh, this is terrible. Well, we need to not let our kids listen to this. This is terrible, blah, 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 blah. And then they're like, they started talking to all these people who were actively trying to get record deals. And they're like, why do you rap about all this hard shit like that? And they're like, man, we try not to, but this is the only thing that white record labels will sign. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. And I I think that, oh man, we could have a whole podcast episode about (laughs) hip hop culture and, and, and the, you know, industry and all of that. Because that is a narrative that has been forced down people's throats about black people that yeah. is just simply not it. And like you said, it's being exploited in order to continue to create um, a certain type of culture in certain communities. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that, you know, whatever that story is for an artist, like if they're rapping about their real life experiences, like they have every right to do that mm-hmm. um but yeah i, I some definitely people found like creative ways to be gangster rappers but then also like, like have a message really ha- yeah, yeah like i mean tupac he has a song about his mom you know what yeah. i mean oh i love that song too i know yeah <laughs> yeah no music is definitely um i think music plays such a a critical role in society and like our attitudes about each other, our attitudes about life, social issues. I mean, there's so many things that music really can explore. And I just hope that music continues to be great and that we evolve as musicians and Mm -hmm. artists in this world and start to really put out messaging that just creates positive change and, and shifts paradigms and and really it gets people to to think beyond what we've been conditioned to think so right here i'll just edit in some music for a smooth transition because i can't think of a good segue let's talk about past the mic okay yeah so um Pass the mic. This is specifically your thing. You helped come up with it or what? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it is my thing. Yeah. I, I came up with the the name, the brand, the current framework. Um, so it, it's something that I've struggled to really um, have be exactly what I imagine it, right? Because when you're collaborating with different people they all have different ideas and different perspectives and different lived experiences and you know I have tried to collaborate with individuals and you know for for whatever reasons I won't go into all of that you know it just doesn't always work out so um, this was something schedules different visions yeah there's there's a million things there's a million things um and and definitely no 
bad blood or hard feelings at this point, but um, <laughs> it, it's something that I am thankful that I'm able to, you know, continue to move forward. So that was one thing, you know, I wanted to make sure that I got to maintain that brand that I helped to build and, and to be able to really see this vision through. So it's it's been a long journey of just getting it to the point where it is now, um, making and, sure I have the right... And real quick, before we get too deep into it, kind of give just a real quick pass the mic is... So Pass the Mic is a perform a multicultural intersectional performance art showcase. Mm. Um, and so it's is really intentionally designed to build uh, relationships across many different um, performer performance art techniques. So whether it's painting, poetry, comedy, uh, theater, you know, we really want to make sure that we're shining light on all these different spaces. And then, you know, the multicultural piece is, is also very intentional. So yeah. won't get into that uh, too much, but just making sure that it's very representative of the vast diversity that this community has. Yeah. So it's Which some- is something that just, I feel a huge push on that right now with, uh, you know, I was, we were talking about um, Dante Cope and his, uh, the, the grand opening of Gramatones. Mm-hmm. I won't harp on that too much because I did a whole episode on it already. <laughs> but uh, you know, his his thing is the the same too. Like he wants to create not just retail spaces, but cultural spaces mm-hmm. where people come, can hang out, and go. Oh, look, somebody who's different from me. Let's talk. Let's interact. Let's yeah. let's let's. <laughs> somebody was saying at the grand opening, they're like, "Man, it's kind of fucked up that the streets called division." We we should maybe change it to unity instead. I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's a good point. That um, would be nice. <laughs> but yeah, really creating unity and division. <laughs> yeah, the irony of that. I mean, I think that was done intentionally too. There's something about the way that streets are named that's actually very in in, in alignment with that whole redlining mm. uh, process. But yeah, um, well, I yeah, definitely- Chris Rock's got the, the bit. Anywhere in America you are, if you're at Martin Luther King Street, go the other way. Yeah, I mean, that's a real thing. Like, you can actually see on the map, like, that the neighborhoods that are usually around an MLK Boulevard are those historically redlined neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and it's in, in Grand Rapids, it's, you know, south of wealthy, ironically. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, Pass the Mic, it's definitely been, it's been a fun process. It's been really rewarding, really challenging at times, too. But, um just the process of like really curating something of that scale with that level of intentionality, like it's not your average showcase. Mm -hmm. So um, I've just been really intentional about like who I want to work with, how I want to work, making sure every single person on the project gets paid. So getting the right funding, getting the right partners, you know, all of that. Because everybody wants somebody else to, to lend their talents, but very few people are willing to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. And even as an artist, I've had to learn how to like really create boundaries and make sure that my time is valued. There's certain people in the city that I will happily perform for, you know, with no expectation of compensation. But I mean, that shouldn't be the norm. Like it shouldn't be the norm that people are, you know, making money off of other people's talent. But that's just the nature of, you know, creating shows sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've had people get upset with me, people that weren't on the podcast that were just fans of the people that I had on the podcast. And they're like, did you pay them to be on your show? I was like, no. They're like, well, maybe you should. I'm like, 
that's not really a podcast. Yeah, right. And also, it's kind of like it's not really your business. Like, unless somebody is really like at, like vocal about like, oh, this person is not paying. Like, you know, yeah. it's their business to to you know have that conversation. Yeah, that, but that one, I was like, because I read that on my social media, and I was like, oh shit, did I do something wrong? Wait, <laughs> no, no. And also, again, like that's not how podcasts work. Like, you're not getting a dollar for every time somebody listens to your show, right? Right. But in the context of you know a showcase, a performance, like every person that's in the audience you're bringing in 10 15 20 bucks yeah so just making sure you're creating a process or a framework that allows everybody to get paid not just the performers but your videographers your editors your door people like that's that's kind of the culture that i want to build and kind of just raise the bar for um these types of events like making sure i put that in the center of this and hopefully encourage other people that have the means and that's other thing we're all fighting over the same resources the same little grants the same audience you know so being able to expand beyond the same and a lot of those gatekeepers have been preying on those you know financial insecurities Mm -hmm. uh saying oh you know well we don't have a lot of money but we can give you this much and then all the different musicians or poets or whatever's start fighting with each other and Mm -hmm. talking shit about each other because they're like oh you don't want him you want me yeah it becomes this idea of like yeah there's not enough to go around Mm -hmm. yep it's very unfortunate and i've seen that time and time again it's something that even i have to resist like because it's been so conditioned into our experiences and there's so much evidence for this idea that there's not enough. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of evidence that feels like that's true. Um, and developing that kind of like abundant mindset, like as cliche as it is, like it's just, it's essential. Yeah. If we want this community to grow, we have to all collectively agree like, you know what? There is enough for everybody. Everybody can find their land, their space, their people, their whatever. Um, and we don't have to fight amongst each other for the same resources, but that also and counterintuitively, we can all be lifting each other up at the same time. Yeah, we were but, talking about that at the opening. Like, man, there's too many people that are just like out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Get on social media, start taking pictures of other people, start tagging them, and before you know it, like, don't do it selfishly. But before you know it, you're gonna have people. Their fans are gonna stump coming over to you, following you, yeah. and you'll get crossover, and then everybody starts coming up. Yeah. Now the egos are definitely that's definitely a huge thing. Um, egos are real. <laughs> it, it's real. We all we all have them. You know, we all you know want to do what's best for us, and yeah. on some levels, that's there's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes a matter of what's best for you requires the exploitation or the disrespect of another Mm. like that's where it becomes you know a serious problem um and i I guess that's just the nature of like art and creativity is like because you gotta have a little bit of an ego to be putting yourself out there in the first place yeah and so the egos collide and you just you just never know but i do have high hopes for the community overall despite some of my negative experiences i've had way more positive experiences than bad ones i've met way more good people in the space than bad people yeah um and and there's a really it's really cool to see this kind of like next generation like of younger artists like really carving out that lane and going hard and being consistent um because i just think like especially after covid there was just like a lull you know, there just wasn't a lot being done. And then all of a sudden the last, you know, two, three years, like we just see so much erupting and um, I'd love to see more alignment. You know, one thing I hate about not just the creative space, but even in like the activist space, like 
you have, you know, 10 organizations doing slightly different versions of the same thing, creating right. kind of these silos. It's like, how much more effective would you be together if you just kind of came together and went after, you know, a grant like as a collective instead of, yeah. you know, the 10 of you competing for the same amount of money. Um, so just little things like that, that I think a lot of people see the problem and we're all kind of thinking through like how to solve it. Um, but I, I think that Grand Rapids is going to continue to go through this uh, renaissance, if you will. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be really great for a lot of people. Yeah. Actually, what you were saying, too, just got me thinking a little bit about the diatribe. I was uh, Foster and um, Gleason uh, took us through a, a tour a couple of weeks ago and um, they were explaining, oh, yeah, we're partnering with so and so to provide this. We're partnering with so and so to provide this. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like a we're the ones that are doing this. We want to be the people that you think of when you think like, no, we're going to work with them. We're going to work with them. We're going to bring people in to do this. We're going to yeah. let people do that. Yeah. Incredible. I, I absolutely love the work that the diatribe does. That's one of the spaces that I'm very involved in as a teaching artist. Yeah. And um, the Emory is is very, it's a very innovative framework. Um, the idea that there's going to be, you know, affordable housing on top mm. in addition to the venue space in the bottom. Uh, financial bring, literacy and yeah, all these things. Bringing yeah, bringing in businesses, a space for youth to, to be around, a space for adults to learn. Um, there, there's definitely not anything quite like it yeah and um i hope that you know people kind of take from that model yeah especially when it comes to like the housing piece i think just being able to like develop more affordable housing is critical for grand rapids right now yeah. and especially what um, they're doing and um i won't hit on too much here but they want to give people affordable housing but then also take some of the money that they pay for the affordable housing give it back to them and use that as leverage for hopefully getting them their own permanent place. Yeah, because I think too that it'll be like temporary. Like so the expectation is, you know, you would live there, but nobody would be living there for five, ten years. It would be, yeah. you know, maybe two or three years. Um Yeah, they're then, not trying to establish projects, they're trying to establish stepping stones. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, super important work. Cannot wait to see what it looks like and what it feels like. And just to be able to contribute to that space is gonna yeah. be a huge, huge honor. Now, your work with the, some of the kids you were talking about, is that something that you do with the diatribe? Because mm -hmm. I see you, uh, are you are you an official team member or do you just work with them? Yeah, I'm, I'm a teaching artist. I've been with okay. them for the last uh, couple of years now. Um, so yeah, the work that I, I mentioned earlier about in schools was the diatribe. I just yeah. didn't know if we should name drop or what, but since you name drop, hell yeah, diatribe, what's up? We fuck switch out stuff on this podcast. Um yeah, I love the diatribe. Yeah. I'm here for it. I've I've talked to a couple of people uh from there and then I've Foster will be my next guest too, hopefully. Nice. Yeah, that's gonna be an incredible interview. Foster has so many awesome stories and experiences and passion and just uh um we're really blessed to have him as, you know, a founder and somebody that's continuing to steer that vision and that work. So Yeah. He's he's a very talented orator, but he's just a very charismatic guy too. Yeah. All around solid person. Yeah. So yeah diatribe is gonna keep on keeping on um and that's just yeah it's great to be a part of that at this current time in history yeah it's making history how did you get uh hooked up with them anyway just did um, you find them they found you a little bold hmm. 
I am. Uh, that's a great question. I'm trying to like, I know initially um, I didn't know a ton about the diatribe as an organization, but I was one of them poets that like to go to Stella's for the retort, you yeah. know? Um, so that was kind of the first time I was ever exposed to like the poetry scene in Grand Rapids was the retort. Um, and I think from there I just started like supporting, um, dang, like how did I really become, I don't even know. That's well, crazy. It, it, it just, seems like at least the impression I get is that, it really was just kind of a lot of poets who were all like, hey, we can do something with this. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, and I think I just maintained, you know, relationships with the individuals that I had met with the organization. Yeah. Um, and then when they did their, like, teaching artist kind of training, you know, they reached out to me about, you know, joining the team as a teaching artist. So, yeah. Funny podcast story. I had Kid Kane on, um, and we met during COVID in one of those outdoor tent things that they had set up um, near the Celebration Cinema lawn, you know, mm-hmm. and she pulls up, <laughs> sits down. I start hooking everything up and I go, oh, I had forgotten one of the microphone cords. Oh, no. And she was like, I live close by. I've got one. I'll be right back. <laughs> so shout out <laughs> nice. to Kid Kane for uh, co-producing her own episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say Kid is uh, one of the most solid people I've experienced and just the talent, the passion again, like just incredible. Like we and have the confidence that woman so much confidence. I would, I would almost venture to say that some people might get rubbed the wrong way by it mm-hmm. and say, Oh, she's you know full of herself. But I'm, I didn't pick that up. I was just like, man, this no. is somebody who knows what they want out of life and they're getting it. Yeah. Like I definitely have never gotten that vibe. Um, but, you know, like anybody who's doing something great is bound to have a hater or two. Yeah. Um, well, Ricky the amount has of a power, great quote. It's better to make something and get criticized than make nothing and criticize others. Literally, like people, yeah, like people who hate on people doing great things, like just have nothing better to do. And that's just the bottom line. Yeah. Um, I made the mistake of uploading part of my book to Discord before it was published just to kind of get a feel from some people that didn't know me. Mm. And a couple people were like, sounds cool. Oh, this looks cool. And then one guy was like, I think this is terrible. And then a whole thread started. And they're like, yeah, I thought it was fucking shit. And I was like, Jesus. Damn. Yeah, literally. Imagine just spending that much of your time, like telling somebody else that their work or their whatever is crappy. Like, Yeah. And it, all the people that piled on to, I couldn't help it because of my ego. I was like, man, I'm going to learn everything about these people. I'm going to fuck them up. And I started looking into it and I was like, oh, these people all say that they're writers or editors or whatever. None of them have any workout. Mm. Uh, and then one guy in particular, I started clicking on, I found his Instagram. I was like, oh, I'm going to find out everything about this guy. And I started looking through and I was like, oh my God, even his Instagram is sad. Okay. You know what? <laughs> Never mind. I'm just going to ignore these people from now on. Yeah. Like I, um, it took me a while, but I had to get to a point where I had like, kind of like that empathy for the haters because yeah. it's just like, again, like you kind of have to have like a sad story, like in order to be that consumed with what somebody else is doing you know and so i try not to let it really get to me if i do come across any information or (laughs) you know rumors or gossip about me it's just like it is what it is like um half the time they uh just want what you have and they're jealous about it yeah yep (laughs) drops mic Insert toilet flushing sound. Oh, that that's that's gonna be good. I really I hope you do that. 
let's talk about um, your book, Pain and Pleasure. Oh, man. So this is a concept I've been sitting on for several years and just finally was like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to do it. (laughs) It's going to be my first book. I don't care if it's shit. I mean, I know it's not going to be shit, but it's just like this is just my like, fuck it. You need to do it kind of project. You're exactly where everybody is with their first book. I can tell you from experience on that. It's it's stepping into an unknown space and all there is that comes with that is fear. Yeah, literally. <laughs> fear and, and, then, hope. and then when I realized, cause I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go the self published route, like go through Amazon. Da, da, da. When I realized how easy it actually was, oh, I was yeah. just like, damn, like I kind of was like pissed that it took me so long to really like try. Yeah. Um. So it's literally just a matter of like designing, you know, figuring out what size you want, design your template, whether it's in Canva or pdf or whatever the hell you use to you know design your template get the page numbers on there titles get some images like format it figure out what your cover size needs to be based mm-hmm. on how many pages your book is design your cover upload it and you have a book like yeah. it's really that simple um and one of the things that i really want to do through my other organization reaching beyond bias and just some of the consulting work i want to do um you know is to actually help equip equip people to self-publish and yeah. just being able to break it down give them the templates or you know whatever that is but pain and pleasure um it's it's gonna be relatively short but um just some of the work that i've compiled over the last few years i have this belief that everything that we experience as humans falls somewhere on this like continuum of pain and pleasure whether mm. it's anger whether it's love whether it's greed whether it's jealousy whether it's you know contentment like it's just there's a continuum of experiences and it's literally our most primal instincts around you know why we do what we do involve our pain and pleasure responses in our brains Mm -hmm. um so literally from a scientific and one can lead to the other exactly um and i actually have a bridge poem that is uh it's like one of those forward backwards kind of poems so you read it forward and it talks about pain and you read it backwards and it talks about pleasure so is that really hard to put together super fucking hard i because i see those and every time i see one of those i'm just like what kind of voodoo magic is this yeah and like honestly whenever i read it i'm just like oh like i want it to be better than what it is so i don't know if like the one i currently have will be the one that ends up in the book i have a pretty short window of time that i need to figure that the fuck out though by um (laughs) And again, like it's this is one of my it's my first project. So I'm trying to really let go of like this idea of like perfectionism and just put something out into the world, yeah. you know, because you can um, always make an, another addition too. when you're like, oh, you know what? I don't yeah. like this and I can change that. Yeah. Like it's not like a million people are going to buy my book. I mean, it'd be cool. But like, I mean, know? don't 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 put that into the world that they just true. won't. True. True. You never but know. I, it's just like that's not my expectation. And that's not why yeah. I'm doing it either. Like right. I um, really believe in. If you're becoming a writer to become famous, it's probably not the yeah, best, not the best path. field, <laughs> not the best field. And and really with a lot of these creative endeavors. But I really have this strong kind of like perspective when it comes to creating art, at least for me, I do not create for an audience. Mm. I create for myself. Yeah. If I'm the only fucking person that likes what I've created, like I, I can live with that. Yeah. I really can. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the attitude I'm taking into this is like, this is like my love project to myself, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and you can't really do... find your own voice any other way. Cause if you're trying to think what somebody else would like, that's not your voice. Exactly. That's you being like a customer service writer. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that's kind of what is really missing from the creative scene in general. Like, yeah, not just in Grand Rapids, like just in general, people are making stuff to satisfy other people mm-hmm. instead of just telling their genuine stories or their genuine feelings. And I think art would just be a lot more raw and vulnerable and, you know, in turn, more people would resonate with it because it would be so much more relatable. Yeah. Um, you might not have as many people that kind of like it, but you'll have more people that really, really like love it. it. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. When you're really putting, when you're being honest with your, your expression and when you're being authentic, like you're going to find, the right audience not mm-hmm. just an audience yeah everybody can tolerate vanilla but some people really like black licorice you know what yeah. i mean like Ew. yeah yeah that's not my audience <laughs> it's not me either it's just fresh <laughs> on my head because my mother-in-law was like here have some black licorice and i was like i don't want to be like mean because i already turned down something else she offered me <laughs> see that's that west michigan nice shit you should have been like bitch get this licorice out of my fucking face Oh, man, I would love to see the look on my dear, sweet mother-in-law's face. <laughs> Does she listen to your podcast? No, no, okay. not not too many of my in-laws. Actually, nobody really, like, I don't think my parents do. I don't think my sister does. I don't think my, like, in-laws do either. Fuck you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> fuck you guys. Uh. This will be, like, the first the episode that my sister-in-law to. tunes into. And she's like, what? This is the type of shit you be on? Yeah, fuck y'all. He said, fuck me. He was making fun of my mom. Um, hopefully you uh, can live with that and suffer the consequences. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> my, as long as my wife still likes me, I'm okay. Okay, yeah, that's um, all that matters. Well, do you have uh, another poem you want to take us out on? Ooh, let me see. Actually, yeah, I, I wrote this the other day. I don't know if it's complete. Um, Because like with a lot of my pieces, I'll write and then I'll stop and I'll be like, this one just, I don't know if it's complete or not. But writing is never done until until you're forced to publish it and give it away. Exactly. And that's like literally one of the things that stopped me from getting my book out there too. It's like, oh, I just have so much more to say. And it's like, bro, just say what you got to say. Hold on. I don't like that comment there. Hold on. Yeah. Like, oh my God, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you do that too much. But yeah, this is um, a love letter I wrote to myself for Valentine's Day. So I'm going to read it. A letter to the better version of me. With you, I feel complete. You see something in me worth fighting for and I adore the way you overcame the pain that once consumed you. You took the shattered glass of the past and put each piece in place. And when I see your face in that mirror, it's clear that you are all that I need. You are my peace, my calm in the storm. There's not a thing in this world I wouldn't do for you. It's true. Better version of me, I see you in my dreams and I'd give anything to be with you forever. Whether better or worse, until death do us part, I will start with today. And every day after, I will look you in the face and say I love you. I will place no one above you, dear future version of me. I hope you see what I see. Thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah. Well, not super fun. You know, like <laughs> not like systemic racism and like yeah. competition and in I, the creative space is super fun, but And I've been thinking about it in the back of my head too this whole time when I was talking about injustices happening in the city to people and then I laughed and it, I was like it's not funny. It was one of those like 
I can't believe that we're still talking about this yeah. stuff. You know, in 2024, you would hope that it would have been a distant memory. So it was more of like a, I can't believe yeah. this is even a thing still. Not it's like the a, irony. Uh-huh. It's the irony. But you know yeah. what? Laughter is medicine. And sometimes like, sometimes it's okay to make light of the irony of, of our society. Yeah. And, and it's honestly, as idealistic as I am, um, I think that some problems might just always be here to stay and it's just about how you respond to them and how yeah. you make the best out of them given your, you know, circumstances. Like and mitigating the spread of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which so is anyways. what you're doing right now with all of uh, your poetry and your justice work and your stuff through the diatribe. Thank you. And thank you for giving me this platform to kind of share a little, little piece of myself with whoever the fuck is going to listen to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right, everybody. That was Shayna Marie. Again, all of the links and things that you were like, wait, what was that? It's all in the show notes. Go check that out. Check her out. Follow her on Instagram. Then uh, you can keep up with all the things she has going on. And if you're in this area, this West Michigan area, you can come check her out. All right, everybody. I'll see you next week. Mwah.